Governor Newsom's executive order to ban gas-powered cars in California. What does that mean and how far does it go? Cassie Siegel from the Center for Biological Diversity's Climate Law Institute walks us through it. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. All right, listeners, welcome back. Hope you're having a good day out there wherever you might be. We've got a great show for you with a terrific guest. Today, we're talking about Governor Newsom's recent executive order in 7920, which seeks to obtain zero emissions by banning the new sales of gas-powered vehicles in the state of California. So obviously a lot of nuance, but luckily we have Cassie Siegel here to join us. She's the director for the Center for Biological Diversity's Climate Law Institute. Welcome to the show, Cassie. Thank you so much, Lawrence. It's great to be with you. Oh, no, it's a pleasure to have you on. So, you know, I saw this story come up. I heard about it on, uh, on the podcast that I listened to, and I read about it, and I talked about it with our producer, and I was like, oh, we've got to cover that. You know, so much nuance to it. I had so many questions. That was one of the challenges I had uh, putting together today's show was I had to pare them down. There was no way we were going to get through all the questions I had planned for you, so I had to do that. But switching energy sources is a really big deal, and, you know, I want to kind of start with the basics, uh, you know, this executive order from Governor Gavin Newsom, you know, tell us about it. Generally speaking, what is it doing? Yeah. So part one covers transportation and part two covers the state's oil production. And the big news from the EO is that Newsom said all new passenger vehicle sales, cars, SUVs, and pickup trucks need to be zero emission by 2035. And that's a very big deal. It also requires all medium and heavy duty trucks operating in the state to be zero emission by 2045, where feasible, but it doesn't have any details on how to get there. And then the second part of the executive order deals with California's own dirty oil production. And it may be surprising to hear that California is one of the nation's top oil producing states and it produces some of the dirtiest oil in the world. The oil companies here are causing massive climate and health damage and environmental injustice. And literally hundreds of organizations of all kinds have been calling on the governor to protect Californians from all the harms of this fossil fuel production. And unfortunately, that part of the EO was very disappointing because Newsom didn't commit to any of the actions that are actually needed to do so. Those are things like putting in a health buffer between homes and schools and oil and gas wells. Many people in California have a well for just feet from their window and the toxic fumes makes people horribly sick. Headaches, nosebleeds, nausea over the longer term. This stuff causes health damage like birth defects and cancer. The state's own blue ribbon scientific panel called for this health buffer in 2015 and Newsom still hasn't committed. He also says he wants to ban fracking, but he claimed not to have the legal authority to do so and is trying to pass the buck to the legislature. But Newsom clearly has the power to ban fracking himself. It's an ultra hazardous activity. So that's the overview. Part of it that did surprise me, though, because I was expecting, you know, uh, the different components of how they were uh, banning the the uh, gasoline fueled automobiles. But uh, the fracking part of it was interesting. So it's not that fracking is banned. They're just going to stop issuing new permits in, uh, by 2024. Is that correct? 
Well, what Newsom said in his announcement is that he wants the legislature to pass a bill that would ban new fracking permits by 2024. But that really doesn't make sense because Newsom himself actually controls right now through his regulators whether fracking permits are issued or not. And in fact, last year he put in a a moratorium on any fracking permits for over nine months. And since that time has, has issued about 50 permits. So it's just, it, you know, it's, it's good, you know, a ban on fracking is very important. We clearly need that, but it was just sort of a very odd, you know, for, for, some, for a politician who is the person in charge with the power to protect California to say the legislature wants to do it, but he's not going to take action in the meantime. I want to transition into uh, the the components of the executive order here. So we've got zero emissions and types of vehicles that are included under. So walk us through that. You know, what does zero emission mean in terms of the type of propulsion and then what type of vehicles does it apply to? Yeah, so zero emission means that the vehicle produces no greenhouse pollution. And, you know, the the executive order doesn't say what type of vehicle that needs to be, but as a practical matter, it means electric cars and hydrogen fuel cell cars. But bear in mind that hydrogen cars have not taken off. There's fewer than 7,000 registered in California, as opposed to well over half a million EVs and hybrid EVs. The other wrinkle is that hybrid electric cars are currently classified in California as zero emission, even though they're obviously not zero emission when they're running on gasoline. Mary Nichols, the regulatory chief, has said that by 2035, only truly zero emissions, that is all electric vehicles, can be sold. A couple of quick follow-ups just to provide a little bit more definition as to what will be allowed, what is not allowed in the future. And so Obviously, California, big motorcycle state. So does this apply to motorcycles? It does not, but the Airboard does have a separate program for motorcycles, and they're working on separate rules for them. There's great electric motorcycles on the road today. My partner happens to be a huge motorcycle enthusiast, and he says that the electric bike he has is superior in every way to to the gasoline ones, but motorcycles are just a very small slice of the pollution from transportation, though. Yeah, well, you just made a bunch of Harley Davidson uh, riders out there cringe because they're not going to have that signature sound. But uh, that's, I guess, that's the cost if you want clean skies. So let me ask a couple more follow up questions here. If there's some gas gas power cars out there used when uh, when the full effect of this executive order go into play, how does that work? Are you still allowed to keep your car? Are you allowed to buy and sell? You know, used cars in a used car market. Yeah, and Lawrence, I just first of all just have to say that the electric motorcycle in my household is a Harley Davidson Live Wire. Oh, they okay. actually were very. Um, there are many other options um, out there now, but they were actually the first to have oh, wow. to have certain features that makes them very desirable. So I just want to point that out. I learned something new. I'm not a bike guy. I learn something new every day. So, <laughs> <laughs> so. so um, as to. Um, Gas cars that people already have. It, it doesn't do doesn't do anything special to those. It typically it takes 15 to 20 years for a petroleum vehicle to phase out of the fleet. California does actually have a buyback program for cars that are at the end of their lifetime to get these big polluters off the road. You can get about a thousand dollars or more, depending on various factors. And regulators definitely should work on getting more programs in place to help people trade up to a clean electric vehicle. That'll be a big win-win, but it's not about preventing the sales of used cars. 
And just last quick follow-up here. You know, if somebody comes in from out of state, they move in or they're visiting, can they bring their new gas cars even past the regulation uh, deadlines? Yeah, definitely. Newsom was very explicit about that. And the EO doesn't change anything in that regard. It relates to new car sales. You can always visit with your car without doing anything. And if you move here with a car, you need to pass California smog check and register your car. But this EO doesn't affect any of that. I know uh, from my research here that there's probably going to be some legal challenges to it, and uh, it's kind of a unique area of law. Now, the basis of my question comes from California has been a leader in clean air admissions. And, you know, back in the 60s when catalytic converters were pretty new, and now it's become the standard, you know, California was a big driver of that. But sometimes in trying to set the trend for that, they get, get in a little bit of trouble with the federal authorities. So can you explain that process as it pertains to this executive order, making the regulations contained within permanent and then the relationship between the California Air Resource Board and the EPA. Yes, definitely. As you lined out there, pollution reduction rules for cars are set by the EPA. That's under Section 202 of the Clean Air Act. But California, because it already had regulations in place when the Clean Air Act was passed, has special status under the law to set its own standards that are more stringent than federal standards. And that is the California Air Resources Board that does that. And then other states have the choice of following the California or the federal rules. And under the Clean Air Act, California also needs the EPA to approve its standards before they go into the effect. But the EPA must grant that permission as long as the rules meet the statutory criteria. And the the main thing is that they have to be at least as protective as federal standards. And EPA has approved California's stricter standards routinely many dozens of times over the decades. And so in some sense, it's really quite routine. California regulators start work on the new rule, they submit it to EPA for approval, and it goes into effect. However, as you alluded to, the state of California and the federal government are currently locked in an epic battle because the Trump administration, for the first time ever, is attempting to block California from setting its own standards. And so that needs to get resolved either through the litigation brought by California, other states, and many environmental organizations like my own because they win that case or because EPA under a new administration returns to following the law. Just at this point in development with Governor Newsom's executive order, it's just an executive order at this point. The additional regulations have not gone through an agency or legislative process within California. So at this point, this could be easily overrun by, let's say, uh, Governor Newsom doesn't win his next election and there's been no development. This executive order could simply go away. The, the executive order could, for sure. I think that's unlikely because Newsom is in office for at least two more years. And I, I don't think it's something we need to be too worried about. And also, once the air board gets the regulations in place, then that, of course, you know, know, an agency can always go back and change its regulation, but that's quite a process, unlike the EO. 
All right, so I've got a, a few more questions for you before we close it out today. I want to I transition into logistical challenges. And so as we were discussing at the top of the show, you know, switching energy sources is a pretty big deal. And so I wanted to kind of work through these just one bullet point at a time if I could, Cassie. So I wanted to talk with, uh, you know, just the, the cost of electric cars. And so I, uh, in my research, I came ac- across a car and driver article where they took the average cost of an electric car versus, you know, the average cost of a gas-powered car in 2000. 19. And so the gas power cars, the average brand new, $36,600. So, you know, obviously there's there's cars for people that don't have a huge budget that cost less than that. That's just the average. Electric cars have a higher average cost, you know, 55500 So that's significantly higher. And I, and I realize that the price of electric cars is coming down. But just in terms of that, I know we have a long time to go before they become uh, more of a mandated purchase item. What recommendations would you have for California getting over that hump with a right now what is a significantly higher cost for an electric car? Yeah, that is very interesting that, that you cite that article because I'm looking at the latest studies from institutions like the International Center on Clean Transportation and other think tanks and academic institutions that really dig into that. And the results from those studies are that electric cars are gonna be cheaper than gas cars a lot sooner than you think. So batteries are getting better and cheaper all the time. And most EVs will actually be cheaper than conventional cars by 2025. And I am am talking about simple upfront vehicle cost. So not including subsidies like tax credits and not including fuel savings. And when you count those in, it comes sooner. My 2017 EV has absolutely saved me money. So I I think the, the, the best available information shows that it's coming a lot sooner than may, may be out there from, from past statements or, or conventional wisdom. All that said, California should absolutely keep providing EV incentives, in particular to address the deep inequity in our current transportation system and to make EVs and zero carbon public transportation available to low income and communities of color that have suffered an unfair lack of access for a very long time. Charging stations. So this is one that comes up. And I know that Tesla's, uh, you know, pushing this. Uh, they're trying to get a, a rapid charge car put together or a mechanism put together. But, you know, I see these at the grocery store, you know, some of these EV charging stations. And I know a lot of people charge their vehicle at home. But uh, one of the things that makes that challenging in California is that, you know, there's a pretty high cost of living associated with living here. And there's a lot of renters. I think this is the state with the highest percentage of renters to uh, homeowners. And so, you know, not everybody that lives in an apartment or rents an apartment is going to have access to their own private parking spot. Not everybody has off-street parking. So the at-home charging model is a challenging. The other thing that's challenging is that although Tesla is working on that rapid charge, they may already have it developed. Typically speaking, electric cars take hours to charge. And so it's a little different than going to the gas station and, uh, you know, putting in a whole new tank of gas in a minute or two. And so what advice would you have for California to kind of overcome that hurdle of charging stations? Yeah, so this is a very important area for investment. But the good news is that there's nothing holding the state back from building out our charging infrastructure. This will create many, many good jobs. Again, the focus needs to be, as you said, on providing charging opportunities to people who don't live in a single family home or otherwise have easy access to charging and also improving charging options near where people work. 
All right, my last question for you has to do with the electrical grid. And so obviously California, uh, the electrical grid is under a lot of strain. And so for people that don't live in the state of California, there's this thing called rolling blackouts and just, and I'm going to, I'm going to oversimplify this, but basically, and this happens a lot in the Los Angeles area, there's these planned blackouts for a short period of time where the electric, the people that run the electrical grid, they shut it down voluntarily to help prevent a real blackout, an oversurge, overuse of power when there's a peak power demand. And so it, obviously electrical grid is under some strain. And so Cassie, obviously, you know, you start adding, uh, from what I can tell here, so about 28.4 million cars in California today, you know, let's say that all of those cars become electric vehicles overnight. That's going to be a lot of extra drain on an already strained electrical grid. So what, uh, what ideas do you have for that? Yeah, well, for better or for worse, it's it's not going to happen overnight. It's it's going to be phased in over time. And electric vehicles can also be a big part of the solution as we move to 100% renewables and upgrade our grid at the same time. So for, for example, EVs parked in people's homes can store energy when it's plentiful and they can provide backup power when it's scarce. And also, just just to make no mistakes, the recent blackouts were due to poor planning and operational errors to to the degree anybody has heard that they were due to renewables that that really is false. And we need to transition very quickly to 100% renewable energy and EVs are, are a big part of doing that successfully. Well, Cassie, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Me too. Thank you so much, Lawrence. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. It helps the show grow, which is always good. And like always, we'll cite our sources for this episode on our website, legaltalknetwork.com, so you can read for yourself. And last but certainly not least, I want to thank Molly McDonough, who's our new producer for the show. She put this episode together. It was a lot of fun. That's all the time we have for today. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 